2: talk a little bit more about mindfulness, which is our subject today. And um, you know, go on with this. It's kind of a master class in mindfulness, and cover the bases and also some new things, if possible, and uh, also dialogue and talk with you in exploring this together. So um, I was mentioning the six kinds of mindfulness, from attention, natural mindfulness, to cultivated, generated mindfulness is from the point of view of our practice. And then to um, intermittent mindfulness where it comes and goes. And it's important that we keep training and using the muscle of mindfulness, the leash of mindfulness to pull the wandering puppy-like mind, the distracted attention back to the object of attention, whatever we're attending to. Breath, mantra, visualization, walking step-by-step, whatever we're attending to, raisin, a loving kindness, a resolve, whatever, and then it becomes stable and it can stay on an object. You can you you will be focused and they call it samadhi a focused absorption, stable mindfulness, and then becomes the bigger, deeper, interwovenness, where interconnected wholeness mindfulness, like sky like mind, somebody calls it. But it still has the notion of mind and sky and meditation. And then there's the Dharmakaya mindfulness, which is way beyond meditation or post-not meditation, you see? Sacred and mundane. That's why this is relevant, to break it out a little. Buddha said that his teachings were like a medicine, remember? He's like the doctor, the teachings, practice, path like medicine. And the people that are interested that come for help are like patients, But after healed, you don't need to keep taking the medicine. Of course, you still might live in such a way, but you wouldn't be a patient anymore. Maybe you would even be a doctor, who knows, and help heal others of their afflictions, physical and mental and spiritual. Buddha also said that the teachings and practices, the path is like a raft to cross over the boiling, stormy ocean of samsara, of bondage, of worldly suffering, of confusion and delusion, the ocean of samsara. But when you get to the other shore, leave the raft. You don't have to carry the raft on your back. In Japan, they have a saying, the stink of enlightenment, for people like that, that it's self-righteous, like newly enlightened. You know, It's like nouveau riche, it's kind of gauche. The nouveau enlightened. They call it the stink of enlightenment. They have to tell you about it. There's still a little karmic residue. The perfume bottle is empty, but there's still the smell. So they laughingly call it stink, even though it's a nice smell. It's still a little too much. And maybe even some people are allergic to perfume, even though it's nice, for most. So these are six kinds of mindfulness that I've been developing and guiding my students in practicing. Of course, in the Tibetan tradition, we would say that there's two kinds of meditation, shamatha and vipassana, or shine and laktang, kind of um, building up or visualizing and generating and then dissolving, and then the union of that is the third. That's like kinds of mindfulness or awareness. In the basic scriptures, the, Vipa- the Theravadin tradition, the root vehicle, the tradition of the elders, the Theravadin, the Sutra tradition, what Buddha taught himself historically, most likely, probably, I don't know, I wasn't there with my iPhone tape recorder. As teachers in Buddhism say, thus have I heard, (laughs) I don't really know, I wasn't there, thus have I heard, that this four foundations or pillars of mindfulness, Buddha taught, mindfulness of being mindful of form and body, uh, our hard stuff, form. And then of more soft stuff, perception, volition, feelings, and so on, mental stuff. And then of states of consciousness. These are the four foundations or pillars of mindfulness. And fourth is of universal laws, like being mindful, aware of causation, cause and effect, impermanence, and so forth. Dharma is, it's cool. You can read about this anywhere, you can Google it. Um, follow Bula's advice. Google, and you shall find. <laughs> <laughs> well, look in the many books on, you know, foundations of mindfulness. What's it? the Sati Bhattana Sutra, the Foundations of Mindfulness by Nyapanika Thera, it was a classic of Western Dharma. In Tibetan... Buddhist pioneers like Chung in Tibetan tradition introduced these four foundations of mindfulness in around 1971 or two in the West. He called it the four close introspections, just to give a related perspective on this. Tempaniya Shakshi in Tibetan, four close introspections, like closely scrutinizing your form and your feel, sensations, your physical, as an awareness practice, mindful of those things. And closely scrutinize your feeling and energy and moods and consciousness uh, and uh, perceptions. And then, third, closely scrutinizing, introspecting, scrutinizing your consciousness and states of consciousness. And fourth, closely scrutinizing reality, sort of the you know universal laws, impermanence. I mentioned already, and whether there's a separate self, permanent you know separate self of things or people or not. And uh, whether things are reliable or satisfying or not, outer things or inner things, you know, so you're not always looking for, so we're not always looking for love in all the wrong places. Understanding where love comes from and abides and that love comes through loving, not from outside. Things like that, universal laws. So the four close introspections, four foundations of mindfulness, practice, I want to say again, emphasizing practice. This is how we can practice, even just starting with one. Like being more aware of your body, where you place your feet. Where are your feet right now? Where are your hands? You know, maybe somebody else tells you, you talk with your hands a lot. Maybe you didn't know because you were brought up like that. Maybe you're Italian, not the stereotype. And everybody you knew talked like that. So you talk like me, you talk like that. It's so much easier to see others than ourselves, right? Generally speaking. So the sangha is a great guru. The sangha is often a, a, a clear mirror in which we can see ourselves, especially a loving mate or a loving sangha members, not just critics, competitors, or you know your your toughest relations. We could say that the four Tibetan mindfulnesses or things to remember, the four recollectednesses, are what we call the four mind changers. This, from Tibetan point of view, is. Four things we should always be remindful of. Four kinds of drempa. To recollect, to remember the preciousness of this of life and cherish it and time and time is like and not waste it. And also not take it mindlessly. Not throw away your life, not kill, not waste life and time. The preciousness and rarity of life and health and well endowed, you know, talents and abilities, and all that we have, that we're not sick, crippled, broken down, impaired, um, mentally, uh, whatever the right word is today, diminished. That we're not less than fortunate, as Reese Witherspoon says, "Illegally blonde." <laughs> less than fortunate. You didn't want to say something negative about somebody. So that life is so precious. And second, that it's so impermanent. Mortality and death, the second, remindfulness or mind change or things. We remember, we, if you keep this in the forefront of your consciousness, then you cherish the moments more and you smell the roses and you don't miss your children's growing up while you're working like a demon to send them to college, and then they're gone. Say, so what happened to those 18 years? Now they're where I worked to send them, but I wasn't even with them. They loved their nanny more than me, or whatever, or know the nanny better. So, life is so precious and so impermanent, remembering that all that are born dies and all that gather are separated and so on, but... Trying to investigate this ourselves by keeping this in the forefront of our consciousness, like keeping our eyes open about the changing seasons and changing periods of our own life, the decades and stages of life, and the changing relationships from child and brother or sister to young adult and lover and professional to husband or wife and then parent and then grandparent, or whatever. I'm looking around and great grandparent, you know, great great grandparents, some of you. The different roles. But who are we really underneath it all? The evergreen question of identity, keeping that alive, to remembering not to lose ourselves in the roles that we're acting out. To talk in English, the soul level, as Ram Dass likes to say, not just the personalities and the roles. Life is so precious, and it's so tenuous and impermanent. And everything that's born dies. And what causes what? What can bring happiness and what can bring sadness? What's healthy individually and collectively and what isn't? Karma, causation. Is God pulling the strings or goddess? Is the person in the White House pulling the strings? Who's doing what around here? Who's on first, as Abbott and Costello brilliantly put it? You can click on that on the Internet. It's a brilliant self-inquiry joke. And fourth, which is really the first noble truth of Buddhism, a dukkha, as I call it, skruka. <laughs> the unenlightened life is full of difficulties and dissatisfactions. It doesn't mean life is, sucks. The unenlightened life is full of dissatisfaction and suffering. Buddha's first noble truth. So it's, you, you don't blame yourself. It's not just me that fucked up. Everybody is suffering in the unenlightened state. And yet there is another way, the third noble truth. So remembering these four things, these four mind changers, and you can look them up in my books or on the web. Everybody knows about this. These are like Tibetan remembrances or mindfulnesses. Of course we could talk about mindfulness of breathing as we find in the meditation texts. Mindfulness of physical sensations as Gawenkaji teaches a lot in his Vipassana tradition. I'm not going to go into all that. It's very familiar. Just to broaden and round out and, and go into the depths also of mindfulness. Mindfulness for enlightenment as well as mindfulness for good performance or for mere peace of mind. You know, Just calm and clear is good but calm and clear is just a temporary state of mind. Great peace is bigger than the dichotomies of noisy and quiet. Great stillness is much bigger and deeper than the dichotomy of noise, of, of movement and stillness. Mindfulness, as I said, is sati, smriti, drempa in Tibetan, which means remembering to remember what you're doing while you're doing it, recollectedness. It's the opposite of being scattered. It's like gathering your wits and applying it here and now to what presents itself, seeing things as they are as well as how it works. Nature, essence, and function, the two sides of mindfulness, of reality in the present moment. That's why present moment is so emphasized in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice. Nowness awareness According to our Dzogchen tradition, nounness awareness is the authentic, unfabricated Buddha within. Not Buddha in the shape of a man or an Indian man or a statue in the garden or a female Buddha, a male Buddha, standing Buddha, sitting Buddha, baby Buddha, old Buddha, or four armed Buddha archetype or thousand armed. Nowness awareness, Tatai Shepa, Rigpa, Soma, Jempa in Tibetan, as Dzogchen Rinpoche sings. And you can read this in the Dhrim Chay's books. Nowness awareness is the authentic, unfabricated Buddha within. That's on our list of of mindfulnesses. Attention and natural awareness is already there. But we overlook it because it's so close. We don't recognize it because it's always there. Even if we do, it seems too good to be true. We can't believe it. What? God is within? Yes, it must be inside the Dalai Lama. He's wonderful. Well, Mother Teresa, but not me. And some are afraid to look in because you're afraid you won't, what you'll find, or we won't like it. Well, we've grown up and had various kinds of conditioning and influences and even mental problems, if you insist. So this. Emphasis on nowness brings us to presencing, not just meditating, as a mindfulness practice. Being more present with and to everything, and even as, not separate from. I'll get on to that this afternoon. Inseparable from. Not just present with the breath, or present with the other, but as the breath, as the other. We hear a lot in Buddhism about no self. I want to talk today a little bit about no other no separation, no other. We hear a lot about purifying and removing our obscurations, impurities, defilements, afflictions, and the long path to do so through purification, the long gradual path through purification, through transformation and reform, through transmutation, transmuting the base lead of human animalistic nature into the gold, the solid gold, of Buddha nature, of pure spirit, immutable, immaculate Buddha nature, original nature. But that's still progressive and gradual. There's also, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize who and what we truly are, as is. That's a very um, profound, not just getting from here to there over many lifetimes of schlepping to enlightenment, And honest-seeking and good-seeking and beautiful, altruistic, compassionate, helping others, too. But also, how to get from here to truly and totally here. That's the non-dual twist or sleight of hand. How to get from here to totally here. So the bubble returns to the sea. You see through yourself and realize you've never been apart from the sea that you're trying to return to. That our separate egos are trying to get back to God or whatever... And to realize it, it, afflictions afflict the self. No self, no afflictions. That's the general Buddhist understanding. But also, there's no other. There's only afflictions, obscurations, or clouds. There's no one being afflicted. There's no other. There's nothing to afflict. Either way you work at it, it can be very, very profound and liberating, freeing. And we realize what we call the inherent freedom of being. as Gandhi or maybe it was Sri Aurobindo said when the British imprisoned him, them, in the black hole of Calcutta prison for their um, freedom fighting days in the 1930s and 40s to get India free from colonial rule. Aurobindo, I guess it was, Sri Aurobindo said, they can imprison my body, but they can't imprison my mind. So we're talking here about something pre-enlightenment, great perfection our true immaculate Buddha nature, or whatever you want to call it, even Buddha is too far in our true original nature, as they say in Zen, recognizing that, unimproved by enlightenment or self-improvement projects, unruined by the schmutz and kaka of, early, of, of daily life, of a personalities and conditioning. The unconditioned, not just trying to make better conditions and get a better rebirth, get a better birth on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Questions or sharing, please, before we have lunch. Yes, over here. Over here. I'm going crazy to get your name, lawyer girl.
3: Lawyer <laughs> well, girl's fine. Okay, It's wonderful to see you. Um, thank
2: you, you too. How are you?
3: I'm well, thank you. Um, when you talk about... <clears throat> um, Lack of separation. <clears throat> That's exactly the question I came here today with. Um, I'm wondering what it was like for you when you were studying for 20 some odd years um, in Tibet and other places for you to come back here and not feel other um, and to feel connected. And um, as you know, question. I live in another country. When I come back here, yes, country 80. very different. Uh, when I come back here, I have so much compassion when I'm in Haiti, and then I come back here, and um, it's harder for me to not have judgment and feel so different and separate. Even Can everybody though-
2: hear her? Okay. This is um, a very touching share and question. So when you come back from that war-torn, ravaged island where you volunteer and all, you feel judgmental or separate from or all kinds of mishmash about... About what specifically? Others, the culture, being here, yourself, all of that? What?
3: Sure. All the of, waste? All of the above. It was also <coughs> following up on a question that was asked earlier is our contribution to other people's poverty. Yes. I could say suffering, but I'll just be specific right. with poverty. Yes. Right. Um, and yes. so, which my, is myself included. Yes. Um, so it's judging myself and it's judging... Sort of our civilization here, and right. there are so many wonderful people here that are aware of that and are really doing yes. are aware of that and are really doing something about yes, it. Yes, they are. And then there They're are others who are not. Right. And so it's hard for me to deal with them and have compassion. Um.
2: Me too. <laughs> That's why I hang out at places like Spirit Rock and other places with kindred spirits and with sangha. And try not to judge those people. It's easier not to judge you all and my fellow Dharma teachers than just the average rank-and-file, you know, Super Bowl watchers that I watched the Super Bowl with a few Sundays ago or more even, you know, whatever, the strip miners, or, you know, I could go on, the people that are doing even more criminal and nasty things in the world, according to my, you know, way of seeing things. So that's one thing. When I came back after 20 and more years away, and it, there was a lot of culture shock, but, you know, I came and went a little bit. So, well, so, I don't know, since since you brought up football, Nicole, I, you know, I'm like about as sensitive as a snow tire. So, like, I can manage. But a lot of my friends, like, threw up the first time they got in a car, or the second time, also, and you know things like that. So, um, but it took a few years. People used to ask me. Also, I was in those three-year retreats, so even just coming out of them into regular Buddhist society or Hindu, it was a big shock. But people used to ask me, "How long does it take you to integrate?" And I said, "I still am." You know, that thing I'm going to say, like, three months, three years, something. I still am. But, of course, it took a few years. But then you're talking about the judgment part. That's a life work. Because the ego is, by definition, separate. Separates itself. The project of selfing goes on. So your beautiful, good-hearted self has put your talents and abilities and assets and time and energy into helping people in Haiti and et cetera. But still you feel like a separate person, so that you're different then and therefore above, below, separate from, like, dislike, other seemingly separate entities. So that don't expect that struggle to end. Now I know you're not sure if I said something really important right then, <laughs> but I'm sure. I don't know if this relates to you or anybody. At the end of um, our first three-year retreat of Lama training, that was just so unbelievable, great. And everything was dear and wonderful with the great Tibetan masters and all. At the end, my teacher said, don't expect the struggle to end. You know, like you're not going to soar out of here under your own power. It was a great reminder not to be over-idealistic. This is the human condition. Let's come back to Buddha. The unenlightened life um, is less than fortunate. It's <laughs> full of suffering. Is dissatisfactory by nature. Scruka, You're screwed. <laughs> but there is another life, the enlightened life, and there's a path to it. That's the good news. There's the diagnosis. You know, you're a sick, You know, know, get out of my office. I don't want to catch what you got. You're sick. I'm sure you know doctors like this with the white masks. I don't want to catch your karma. (laughs) But then there's the therapy, you know, there's a diagnosis. And once you have a diagnosis, that's good. Better than not knowing the disease and its name. Then you can try this cure and that cure. So there is another life, the enlightened life, that's the third and fourth noble truth, and there's a path to it. So I think that um, judgment comes with separateness and it's just don't let your mind bother you and don't bother your mind so much. And stay in the heart and keep you know, loving and giving and taking care of yourself so you don't burn out. And I mean, I can go around to all these beautiful places. Like I said, you said, what did I do? So I hung out with my beautiful colleagues and friends and I feel like I live in... Does anybody old enough to remember Abby Hoffman's Woodstock Nation book? I feel like I live in Buddhist Nation, but I also have other kinds of friends, and I still have New York Clan and family and other things, you know. So that's life. It's great, and it's not always easy. And you know, when the plane gets canceled and you get stuck in the snowstorm, or you get sick or things, you know, shit happens. But shit can also be manure. If you use it like fertilizer and manure. We can't avoid it. So, as the great Do-Jip Chen Rinpoche said, one of my friends who's an American Tuku, Tuku Sharab Dorje, visited Do-Jip Chen Rinpoche, who's about 80 and elder, and one of the greatest living Dzogchen masters in Sikkim, which is near Bhutan, at his monastery in Sikkim. He asked the master, if through all these years and all these retreats and all your accomplishments and all your lifetimes. Can you give us a word of wisdom for me and the few students that I brought here to Keem all the way from America? And the Rinpoche said, keep on going.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which is good. That's like saying you're on the right path. Keep on going. But he was also talking about himself. Isn't that a beautiful thing? A Bodhisattva keeps on going. And that includes working on oneself and attitude, refinement and transformation and all, and looking at the egotism and the judgment. and Why don't those people get it? You know, Why don't they get it? It's so obvious. Global warming is real. Evolution is real. Why do 80% of people in Kansas vote for creationism in the schools? It's hard to understand everything. It's beyond our mind. But there's room and in the big heart for that. Otherwise, you have to get into the big heart more. Not You can't change that. Meanwhile, we work on that too, education and other things. So from outside in as you work and also from inside out and with patience and even a sense of humor at the absurdity of these things. What? Creationism? Has to be taught in the schools? Somebody just came up in the break and uh, I won't mention who, to protect the guilty, and said, what do you think of so-and-so center in, I feel what they said, Berkeley or Simpson, so-and-so center. I said, I don't know that center. I felt like I was getting the easy way out, because I can honestly, I don't know that. And then that person said, oh, the teacher is so-and-so. And then I, I, I said, oh, yeah, I, I know him. And they said something, you know, about... What was wrong over there, and how much nicer it was over here. So I said, Well, I'm glad you said that because I don't like to say negative things. (laughs) But that's my opinion, too. You know, it's much nicer over here. I'm not talking about another Vipassana center. Don't get neurotic. You know, not. So, judgments? Sure. You're some kind of lawyer. You have to make judgments sometimes. As Trumper said, why judge unless you're getting paid for it? <laughs> <laughs> and that comes with the sense of humor about the absurdity of all this, like we understand everything, or we should understand everything. Okay? Judgment is tough, and the self-judgment is the worst thing. That's where most of this comes from. So the more we can work on loving and accepting ourselves, the more the whole world will love and accept us. I guarantee that. And if it doesn't come true, you can get your money back from Spirit Rock. Don't call me. (laughs) Questions? Yes, sir. Take the mic, please.
3: Could you talk briefly, or if you prefer at length, about um, mindfulness and the bodhisattva vows?
2: Not really. Those are kind of different levels of things. You know what I mean? That's like saying, I, I don't know what, what would be an example. Can you talk about the wafer in the Catholic Church? And um, I don't know, you know, what comes to mind, I don't want to say, so I'll say something else. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's The Bodhisattva vow is a whole subject, and mindfulness is a practice of... A meditation, you know, it's like concentration is a meditation technique mindfulness, loving kindness and you know what I'm saying so of course bodhisattvas practice and need to be mindful of different things including their bodhisattva vows of unselfish altruism and so on but you can practice mindfulness without that like probably, and I don't want to pick on anybody and be judgmental like Nicole over here we, we won't mention any names laughter What happens at the the rock here stays at the rock. Nobody gets out of here alive, so it'll be fine at the rock. Snipers are benefiting from mindfulness training. Athletes, you with me? So, because it helps to concentrate and still mind and still body and longer attention span. Why we're not teaching children this meditation instead of medication for ADHD, I don't know. Attention span, meditation games, and so on. God only knows. We should ask her. What's your real question about the Bodhisattva vow? That's a huge subject, but a very interesting. What's your question? Just blurted out, unedited.
3: I I am I'm, I'm studying Zen and I'm interested in t- receiving the That's precepts. That's the center
2: that I was referring to. <laughs> so there's no no hope. <laughs> no, it's not.
3: And and I I was curious about um the Tibetan equivalent of receiving Yeah. the, the precepts. I, I mean, know
2: I know Zen people think that they're not Buddhists as it says. Zen is a teaching outside the scriptures, pointing directly at the nature of your Buddha mind. But Zen Buddhism is a part of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism in general, as is Tibetan Buddhism, part of Mahayana Buddhism in general. So we, Tibetan Buddhists, etc., take the Bodhisattva vow, like the Zen people, and it's more or less the same. You have your four-line Bodhisattva vow, and we have ours. You know, going back in time through the lineage toward the Buddhist time, almost exactly the same. And Mahayana Buddhism explains a lot about the Bodhisattva, that's very interesting, the bodhicitta. Like, if you want to help deliver beings from suffering, make yourself an ark. Bodhisattva is an ark, is a vehicle. But the engine of the vehicle is the bodhicitta, is the awakened heart-mind of compassion and altruism and unselfishness. That's the engine that drives the ark, the vehicle. Maybe ark is too old-fashioned. We should say station wagon or soccer van or aircraft carrier because we were thinking about a lot of beings, not just our, our kids to the soccer game. And also, so we try to keep this vehicle on the road. We don't just be overly unattached to it and let it fall apart too soon. So the vehicle and the bodhicitta, the heart is, you know, In Zen, they call it the way-seeking mind. Bodhicitta is the engine. And then loving awareness or selfless awareness is the, the, the gas, the fuel, that drives the compassion and the love and the generosity and all the six or ten paramitas, a word you would know, the transformative virtues, the paramitas. So vehicle and then engine and then the fuel. So we want to keep fueling the engine and driving the vehicle and delivering the beings. That's the bodhisattva vow. Now people will say, I thought the bodhisattva was somebody who vowed not to get enlightened. And you hear other things, but I don't want to remind people about these weak translation ideas. You ask your questions if you have them, if you heard those things. So it's the same, Zen, Mahayana Buddhism. It's called the Bodhisattva Yana, the way of the bodhisattvas actually. Mahayana means like arc, the arc, the big vehicle of universal enlightenment. So I hope that's helpful. That's kind of what you were asking about, right? And then, of course, mindfulness is one of the main things that helps the Bodhisattva get enlightened and refrain from harming people and, you know, not be a drunken driver that kills people on the road and not be a drunken um, person that harms everybody and the environment and the animals and can't take into account the flora and the fauna and all as somebody was asking, why is mindfulness so limited in not thinking about the animals and the insects and Of course, a bodhisattva, which try not to harm anybody or anything and treat others even better than they are than they treat themselves because we treat ourselves like crap so much of the time. We need a new golden rule: treat others as our beloved child would be. Treat- we'd like them to be treated, not as we treat ourselves, with our low self-esteem and self-hatred and cutting and drugging and all that. Any other questions before we um, go to lunch? Yes, sir. In the middle there, with the gray T-shirt. Please wait for the mic so everybody can participate.
1: Um, my question, um, I guess, uh, um, difficulty I've had um, in getting better at being mindful is sort of using not using mindful, but I guess it's come to my attention that I've sort of been able through mindfulness to push emotions down. Yes. Where me too. You know where, you know, I was surprised recently, like, wow. Um, And it felt good to have those emotions, whereas I can um, in my Buddha nature or my being mindful, um, it's almost, I guess, kind of using a drug to be in a better place to to see those feelings, you know, or Mm -hmm. but not really be in those feelings. So I guess I how can we use mindfulness and be in our emotional state so they connect as it. You know.
2: C and B come together, as I was saying, with the, the, the metaphor of the bubble in the sea. We feel separate. You know, people talk like this. They want to be, become one with God or they want to get from, you know, to nirvana or something, right? Right. So it's, not, it's an apt metaphor, the bubble in the sea. It's not separate from the sea, but it feels separate. So when you see through yourself that you're not a separate, permanent self then you don't even have to burst the bubble or slay the ego, as some people say, I think really not rightly. And you see through yourself, you realize that you've never been apart from the whole, the one, etc. So you can be, as I said, not just with those emotions, but as in into what being with. There's no you separate from the emotions, and therefore you don't have to suppress them because they're not afflicting anyone. But, they're just energies arising in the play of, I won't even fill in a word, yeah. the great snow globe of being in the, in the Buddha mind.
1: I guess it's just easy to, um, to yeah, I, I don't know how to really explain it, but just being, um, seeing my actions as mindless, and then just, just sort of well that was wrong way of thinking and so those emotions may be the wrong way of feeling because if mm-hmm. I think this way I can feel better but yet it, I'm you know it may think I'm distancing. feeling better
2: is not the goal here is it
1: I mean, no, but I guess enlightenment
2: and but... feeling is a feeling better and worse you know it's like fighting for a better birth on the Titanic
1: right but I guess witnessing and and um, not, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you're Witnessing letting go of good. it, but yeah. to witness it and see it as happening as opposed to, well, that right. didn't really happen because I wasn't really thinking of it right. I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you know, you know, the old saying that you can't punch your way out of a paper bag.
1: <laughs>
2: the mind can only go so far. Yeah. So it's hard to, but, but you're, you're on the beam. You're on the beam. I too, being a guy, but I don't know, other genders may also, you know, fall into this, who knows, used and I wouldn't say mindfulness, but meditation, I'd say, and concentration to suppress my emotions, to stop thinking and stop feeling. This is a big waste of time. We have pills and bottles for that. (laughs) If that's what you want. And that's not using mindfulness. Like I said, that's using concentration to suppress things from arising. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness is defined as aware of. Mindfulness of thoughts is meditation, as I said earlier, not just thinking. You don't have to stop thinking. That's just another state. Mindful of no thought is meditation. No thought is not meditation. That's not the goal. Mindfulness of feeling is meditation, is the path this path. Just feeling is just is not the goal. So, body, you know, ear, sounds, sights, smells, all the six senses. Mind is the sixth. The objects of them: the sounds, the sights, the taste, the smells, the tactile sensations, and the thoughts are all just the objects of the awareness. So, just like you don't necessarily have to close your eyes or your ears or not feel anything with your body to. Practice mindfulness productively, happily, and towards enlightenedly. You don't have to stop thinking either. Anyway, you can't stop thinking forever. You can only stop temporarily. And now if you're a lawyer, if the inner lawyer says, what about when I die? I'll say, well, Buddhism will say you still won't stop thinking. It might not be you sitting there thinking, you know, with your personality, but the karmic conditioning of the mental body could continue. So try to be mindful of whatever arises, as in the meditation instruction I gave and many give. Aware, mindful of whatever comes up in the present moment. You heard me say that today. In the body-mind continuum, in the field of consciousness. Any words you want to use, whatever comes up, whatever arises, watch it arise and dissolve without crazy gluing it into position, without reifying it with your concepts. And I like that. Let's keep that. I wish the bird would keep singing... Uh, I don't like that traffic sound. I wish the truck would stop, you know, farting. And that's how we live our life. I want, I don't like. It's exhausting. All this selfing. Ah, ah, You know, I like, I love you, I don't love you. You know, it's like appealing. I I love you. He he loves me, he loves me not. I want you, I want you not. It's really the same. Attraction, desire, and not wanting. It's exhausting. So that's why the mindfulness helps you. These are just words. Detach, gain some space from, be more spacious about things without reacting right away. So there's more space between stimulus and response through any of your senses to choose how, when, and if to react or respond to respond. Not just blindly knee-jerk react to every stimuli.
1: And I guess also just I sort of feel like a, 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 a this dualistic part where I'm being I guess judgmental of my reaction to something so I have an emotion that comes up and then I go well you know I don't need to overreact this way so that's you know and so then I guess it's sort of pushing that emotion down instead of sort of like oh you're feeling this that's okay and then let it you know but I'm judging how or I should think this way and if I thought this way yes Yes,
2: you're shooting on your head as they say Don't shoot on your head. All right. A nasty that will word. stick. <laughs> and then, look, we're all in this room. We're all in the same bag, probably. We get that judgment about ourselves, and, and worse, we think, oh, I don't know, whoever comes to mind. Lama Suridas wouldn't, <laughs> you know, with the Dalai Lama, he wouldn't, you know, whatever, right? Well, what Jesus said, you know, turn the other cheek. So rather than belabor this point, just to end on a, I don't know, a positive note that'll make me happy, my old friend Ramdas from our ashram days in India was telling me this funny story last week that in the morning at the ashram a long time ago he died in 1973. Maharaji, our guru said was very very old and we respected and loved him a lot. Of course, in Hindi, I'm imitating. You should you know, never get angry. <laughs> 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 you know, to your guru, you don't say through the trend. Guruji, you should never say never. You don't say that. <laughs> never get angry. <laughs> and then the guru said, <laughs> Go and have tea. So he was pushed to the back of the ashram. We were always being pushed to get out of the way there because otherwise we would have clung on to his feet all day like you know, devotees, that's the word. <laughs> and then Ram Dass, of course, was so devoted, he was the most devoted of all. He was hyper-devoted. He came, snuck down, and he, in his words, was watching from behind a curtain. I don't know what that means, a window curtain, a door curtain. And he saw Maharaji shouting and screaming and berating this sadhu, this holy man of the ashram who was in charge of the food stores, the, the, the storehouse, the pantry for the whole ashram, and had wasted a lot of potatoes. You know, in India, wasting food that people had donated, that Maharaj wanted to feed everybody and the poor every day, was like bad, obviously. He was, he was berating his staff member, who's actually a holy man in orange robes, not just the average, I don't know, <laughs> underpaid, minimal wage, you know, abused person without any health benefits. <laughs> no, it was a holy man who wanted to serve Maharaji in the ashram. But ma- Maharaji was screaming, ber- berating, and screaming was the word Ramdas used. <laughs> so Ramdas got all huffy and self righteous, of course, just like Nicole would, or you do about yourself, or I do. Huh? you know, how, how could Maharaj? in the morning he tells me never to get angry and then he's like shouting at this poor holy man and just about potatoes. So later he accosts Maharaji when he gets a chance, he says, and Maharaja said, there was a good reason for that. <laughs> End of discussion. <laughs> you can't figure, why? Never get angry. Except when there's a good reason. I know and you don't, so... <laughs> Isn't that life, though? Isn't that life? But at every level. Why is some child born with a certain thing? Is it their fault, The bad, you know, disease? Sometimes you can trace the root and sometimes you can't. So people have a lot of answers for that, you know. So part of letting go could be trusting and surrender. That doesn't mean being a doormat, but... Surrendering to what is, trusting, letting go means letting be. While we're trying to be better people and contribute to a better world, of course. So for you, I say, never judge yourself. <laughs> Don't shoot on your head. Ever. Ever.